The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Hey, Neil Modi. It's Chris here. How are you? Good, Christopher. I, you know, I was thinking, we're lucky. I get to see you. I get to talk to you today. I get to see yeah. you tomorrow, Thursday and Friday. Well, I, I, that hasn't happened for us yet. Four days in a row. <laughs> it's a string of visits. Yeah, L- I get lucky to see me. you a lot, Neil. I feel mm-hmm. really lucky. Uh, well, me too. Me too. Yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I won't go into all of the sentimental details, but just assume I shared a bunch <laughs> with you. Because I feel lucky. There you go. I won't go any further than that. Let me go grab Vivian. That's good. Thanks. Hey, Neil. Hey, Vivian. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. I've got you on the phone with Chris with us today. Vivian. Hello. I'm Chris Heidel. It's a pleasure to meet you. Hi, Chris. It's a pleasure for myself as well. (laughs) (laughs) Vivian, I've told him all sorts of uh, great things about you. Um, all of well, a lot of the projects that we've talked about, and how you helped build some of the underpinnings of Guild, and r- really led that effort, and um, how you, you dabble as a labor economist. And dabble's probably never a word that you would use because you don't really know how to dabble. But uh, <laughs> I've been telling about you for a long time, and you might remember that as I learned more about a little bit of your background there, I thought that the three of us should have a conversation as part of our podcast. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a blast. And um, if dabbling is not the perfect terminology, then maybe just making mischief is sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> making good trouble, yes. And, and, and Vivian, I, I, just to refresh your memory, I want to give you a little background on Chris. Um, Again, Chris is a uh, registered investment advisor out of Pasadena, who's beat the market uh, thirteen out of the last or fourteen out of the last sixteen years. He's practiced, um, averaging uh, above fifteen percent a year. Uh, he's only had a couple down years ever. He's he's what I might call a, a Buddhist economist with um, some jazz seasoning. He he uh, enjoys everything from jazz music to meditation. But like you. He really tries to look at every piece of data with a fresh set of eyes uh, using his own research. So there was a couple of reasons I thought I ought to connect you. It sounds like they're good reasons. I mean, who can stay away from Jazzy Buddhists? (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not myself, I can tell you. He's one of my best friends. Um, well, it, it really is a, a pleasure, and I certainly trust um, Neil's recommendations. Um, yeah. So it's it's great to talk, and here I am now, all wonderfully settled in. Great. Vivian, one of the places I was hoping we could start, and I'm sure Chris will have a thousand more questions, even though he'll only ask a few. Um, one of the things you had said to me is, you'd been able to look at some interesting leading indicators of uh, the economy based on some of the LinkedIn data you'd looked at. But you know, talk to us a little bit about your, your labor economist hat and where you dive deep and why and 
and let's maybe pick it up from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, um, when I call myself a labor economist, it's definitely with mischief in mind, uh, rather than the formal training, uh, Guild hired me as the chief economist, uh, um, essentially an HR company, um, deploying AI to improve um, hiring. Well, formerly, what we said was we want to take bias out of the hiring process, not just classic bias, um, but you know what is what does the company really need? Who's the right hire for you? Um, and there was so much we explored about that, and I always love going into detail about all of that sort of work, but it gives you at least a starting point, which is um, if you hired someone that had no background in HR, in fact, had never even had to interview for any job she's ever had, um, and was not a formal labor economist, though I certainly know my economics, um, instead you hired her because she was a mean machine learning expert with uh, experience working with massive data sets. Um, what would you get? And what we ended up with was a database of 122 million people and data pulled off of 100 different public websites. So we weren't looking uh, at anything being released by the Department of Labor. We weren't looking at state labor statistics. Or, or any of the classic indicators. We were looking at Twitter and Facebook, LinkedIn, um, GitHub, Bitbucket, personal blogs, anything and everything pulled together. In fact, the hardest starting point is how do I know Thurston Howell III on LinkedIn is Crankosaurus on GitHub? Um, you know, it turned out we needed some fancy machine learning just to make certain it's the same person across different sites. Uh, all the way down to running face recognition algorithms off of uh, pictures to tell if it's the same person. Um, but once we had that data, we could start to do some really interesting things. And uh, what Neil was referring to is one of the most, it still remains one of the most interesting things to me, uh, again, because it was it was the very first project I ever did with social data. Um, it was even before Guild. I had been asked to come in and advise a small startup that was trying to put sort of a personal, for lack of a better term, a personal betterment app together. And it was pulling in data off of Facebook and LinkedIn. And um, I just needed to get familiar with it. I needed to get a sense of what was going on. Well, it was 2009. Uh, and I figured I have all this LinkedIn data. What if, what if I just took some really simple information off of LinkedIn? Uh, and in some ways, what I'm about to say may not shock a real labor economist. But I think what was shocking was that someone with no background could pull this information off of public data sites and make this observation. So... I created a uh, metric that I called job volatility. And it was just a function of people's own self-report. Wait, can you repeat uh, that? You know, called what utility? Uh, job volatility. Job volatility, got it. Or employment volatility. And, and there are some, there, now I, I know that there are some formal um, uh, metrics around that. But 
this is just a label that I applied to this particular thing, which was I simply took all this LinkedIn data, which extends well back before LinkedIn. You know, people put in their history into LinkedIn, their employment history. So at this time, across uh, a few thousand people, I had, it was like I had a few thousand resumes. And I looked at when people started and when they stopped their jobs. Um, and averaged that across all of these people, many different domains, many different backgrounds. And what was fascinating is that this simple measure, so I, I essentially it was a, a time-bearing uh, value that was sort of like your, your instantaneous job volatility, one of those famous metrics um, that is incredibly useful and doesn't actually mean anything in the real world. Like there's no, there's no instantaneous job volatility any more than there's an instantaneous frequency and sound, but we can pretend like there is. Um, so it turns out if we just look when, how at any given month, um, what percentage of people were leaving their jobs? How long were their tenures of those jobs uh, was the core of it. Uh, so what's, what is the average tenure uh, of anyone at their job at a, on any given month? And it turned out this uh, metric had two big sort of sweeping um, and, and needed to be detrended because people were coming in and to LinkedIn and so forth and um, sort of fanciness around all of that. But we got these two sweeping peaks, 1999 and 2006. Uh, and then fast decays in both peaks, um, um, where we see people um, taking longer and long tenures and, and less and less likely to leave jobs um, over short periods of time. And then those bottom out in 2001 and, um, and 2000 and roughly nine. It was just starting to trend up by the time I looked at this data. Uh, now, even if you want to call it an N of two, looking at the dot-com bust and the real estate bubble, it was still fascinating that, again, publicly available data that anyone could have gotten their hands on uh, showed this um, clear signal. I mean, really pronounced even average over on a few thousand people uh, that proceeded in both cases, proceeded a big market collapse um, by quite a bit. Um, you know, no one in 2006, at least no one publicly would have said that there was a problem, nor would anyone in, in 1999. Clearly the early indicators were there. Um, but at the time, uh, clearly remembering both of them myself, um, no one would have externally said that there was a problem. But what I was able to pick up on from this public data was something that post hoc we've looked at closely, which is sure enough, as things begin to tighten up, uh, the actual employees in an industry are very sensitive to it. And they quickly respond by not leaving work. You do not leave a job at a time when there's job volatility. Uh, and so we see these tenures extend and extend. Um, yes, people are getting laid off, and that's cutting tenures at the same time. But um, we generally speaking, you, you see this this much less likely for people to leave jobs during a downturn. 
And it turned out, according to LinkedIn, they're much less likely to leave jobs a good year or more before the downturn really um, becomes part of the public awareness. Huh. Vivian, so this is Chris. If I'm hearing you correctly, I interpreted the job volatility as a sort of coincident indicator initially. But what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the job volatility is um, tamped down. Typically, you see people staying with their jobs longer and less movement uh, as, a, as a precedent or precursor to economic volatility. Yes, that, um, you know, they become sort of a canary in the coal mine uh, or they're like, you know, my old dog Valentine during uh, an earthquake before I ever realize anything's going on. Valentine is, you know, sprawled out with four legs on the floor and the belly down. Um, and then the earthquake starts. And I think maybe in a sense before people even realize there's a broad issue going on, they're already buckling down. Like people stop the job hopping. They stop the sort of gig, the gig economy slows. Um, and, uh, and this clearly preceded both of these events. Huh. You know, it's, um, fascinating. I, um, Thank you, Vivian. That's really interesting. I used to uh, devour Walmart uh, reports because one of the beauties of Walmart as the largest retailer in uh, their space and certainly as a great data monitor themselves, a great data collector and, and doing great data analysis is they would look at the spread, the distribution of sales over the course of a month. And as those sales um, became um, much more narrowly focused, especially around paydays, the 10th, I mean, the 15th of the month and the 1st of the month, for example, they would recognize that as an economic danger signal, that people were living more paycheck to paycheck and could only afford to shop when they were paid or to make their purchases um, on or around paydays. So that, um, that was their sort of canary in the coal mine for um, economic dislocation or potential problems and recession. Which makes a lot of sense. It's interesting um, that, and again, this this is just, it was a total novice project for me up front, but having gone deep into this stuff since then, finding that this is a known phenomenon, um, no one had ever looked at it in terms of, again, the, the digital footprint people leave behind, but... Um, I think what's fascinating about it is also that we're talking about the people on LinkedIn. So this is not people that are traditionally thought of as economically at risk that would necessarily be immediately responsive to um, relatively subtle fluctuations in the economy. And maybe in this case, the tech industry is more sensitive than others. Um, But since then, we've modeled out um, things like tenure. People are disturbingly like mathematical. How smooth the distribution around probable uh, tenure dates are for a tech job, um, you know, despite the four-year um, option schedule for um, most tech employees, everybody's leaving between two and three years. 
just very, very reliable. Um, and things will push that around in positive ways. Cultural fit is they will push that out by 60 to 80 percent. Um, and so there, there's neat stories there about what companies can do really effectively using data to um, improve those numbers. Uh, but the other thing is seeing how that, is, how that distribution changes over time uh, and seeing, again, that, um, that this particular industry, and it's probably not that different in others, but certainly this one, where you have this relative volatility associated with um, the value of people's, you know, such so much of the compensation is at least in spirit, in form of equity, um, that people are really responsive to that. If if my Yahoo shares uh, are underwater, then what's the point of holding my job at Yahoo? Um, so just being able to to nudge around in all this and see that it isn't just about whether people are worried pay the paycheck to paycheck, whether they can meet it, but people are making sort of rational career decisions that are just as sensitive to, you know, these, these early economic indicators. Vivian, do you ever think about putting up like, you know, uh, the, the Ming ticker symbol on where you think things are going in the economy in some way? Like, obviously, I've been to your website and uh, checked out Socos and all of the the different things you worked on. Uh, probably you're the only person I've checked out everything they're working on that I, that you publish anything about or mentioned, uh, just because I find that so curious. But any thoughts about putting up, you know, a regular uh, symbol or a regular update in some way that that's automated? That sounds like fun. Uh, I I haven't really thought about doing that. I've I've become a little bit more involved in writing op eds. I just finished one actually for Ted Med, um, that's uh, a bit of a prelude to the book I'm writing, How to Robot Proof Your Kids. Um, but I also just wrote one for the Financial Times about the neuroeconomics of inequality um, and understanding what seem like irrational decisions in the context of um, recasting them as in entirely rational if you don't think that your hard work is going to pay off. Um, you know, why would a kid not take a full-ride scholarship to MIT? Why would a woman not pursue a, uh, an executive position at a company if she feels qualified to do it? It seems irrational. But when you formalize this um, in, uh, you know, these economic terms, but you change things like you know, the, the time discounting and the marginal cost of certain decisions, it completely changes. Two people can see the exact same opportunity wildly differently. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said on there, what's, what's the point of spending five years at MIT if you think you're just going to end up back on the farm? Um, and uh, so it, there's all sorts of things that I, I have the freedom to get to communicate around. I, you're right, it would be kind of cool to, to post some of these things just for fun uh, on the website. But I, I guess I've never thought of doing that. Is, is there an automated way in which to do it? Oh, sure. It turns into a bit of a cat and mouse game with um, LinkedIn. I was very flattered when I met Reed Hoffman for the first time and introduced myself. And he said, oh, I know who you are and I don't like you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, 
<laughs> we had a very nice conversation after that, but I, I have historically made liberal use of LinkedIn data without their permission. In all fairness, it's not really their data. It's data that their members put into their system. Um, they actually have things which is their data, say their, their, their ratings. You know, if you look at my LinkedIn page, you'll see that I am, have a lot of people recommend me for neuroscience. But think hard about what that means. How many neuroscientists do you think I'm linked to on LinkedIn? You know, so 100 people <laughs> think I'm a great neuroscientist, and they're all, you know, they're a bunch of marketers and, you know, business leaders. What the hell do they know about neuroscience? Um, so generally, I find social data, um, explicit data generated by people in social context, upvotes, favorites badges, all this is not only, it's not just useless, it's, 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 uh, it's chaff, you know, it's like active countermeasures to hide the truth. Um, in fact, there's this incredible research, which I just love about how, um, most social systems formalized online are, um, chaotic. They're formally chaotic. Uh, and therefore, they lead to highly inequitable and uh, nonlinear and unpredictable outcomes. Um, so to give you a sense of what I mean, uh, given some of this literature, it's strongly argued that if you really... Hello? Hello. Hey, I think I'm here. I think we still lost Vivian. Let, let me let me call her back. Hold on one second. Okay. So just when it's getting good, always, right? I know, right at the. <laughs> crux, like, oh. Adding her back in. Hi. Sorry, we got off cut, cut off ten seconds ago. I see, I see. Yeah, sorry, we lost you right at the juiciest part. Right at the jam. juiciest part. Um, so there's this great paper that uh, they ran. It was published in 2005. Um, it has this very involved title, but it's, the gist of it is they people that showed up at this actual new music site unbeknownst to them, a part of a giant experiment. And they got assigned to one of nine virtual worlds. In the first world, you didn't hear, you didn't see anyone else's rating. You heard a song, you gave it a rating, you saw a random array of songs. In the other eight worlds, the songs were ordered by, and you saw the average rating of the people in your virtual world. And they found three things. One, there really is good and bad music. Uh, it's not a huge effect. But if three people like a song, fourth person's probably going to like it also. Averages, sixes and sevens. Average lows, threes and fours. Finding two. Soon as you add that social element in, bam, big nonlinear effect. The top songs are now tens. The bottom songs are zeros. Uh, everything else kind of flattens out. No one really listens to the stuff in the middle. 
Um, okay. You know, all right, if it's a non-monotonic function, I can squash that back and get the original. Not the end of the world. Well, it turns out it is the end of the world. Uh, it's a chaotic process. Um, no song that got the nonlinear pick in any of the eight worlds got it in any other. Um, so you have to be good to be great, but the great is best, best uh, modeled as a coin toss. Um, Interesting. And it's been shown again and again. It's a research paper after research paper. They've looked at Kickstarter campaigns. They've looked at VC funding. They've looked at all sorts of things. And they show the sort of, as I somewhat provocatively call it, the distorting effect of social signals. So, so theoretically, so I really based like, on all of the research you've done, you could really distort a lot of social signal in, 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 in places. <laughs> Well, I like to look at, at what people actually do. Um, so what do people say? Go on a Q&A site like um, Quorum or Stack Exchange or something like that. And they've got upvotes and they've got followers. None of those turn out to be very useful. Um, the best that they tell you is someone is an awful. Um, <laughs> but at, at a technical site like Stack Exchange or specifically Stack Overflow, which is a programming site, but you know, it has, Stack Exchange maintains a huge set of technical Q&A sites. What we find is the, the top voted person is almost, is, is not almost, they are never the best qualified. In fact, they are not even remotely the best qualified. And it's easy to understand why. Um, the best qualified people are answering questions where you don't even understand the answers, much less the questions. So who's going to upvote those? Who, who even understands what they're talking about other than a handful of experts? So instead, we devised some really simple metrics. Who answers whose question? Do that on a site like Quora um, with one assumption built into it. The answerer knows more than the asker. Now I've got millions of pairwise comparisons. You use some simple techniques, um, a bunch of different kinds of embedding techniques. Turns out in this context, um, uh, LLE, local linear embedding, is good enough. Uh, it gives you a, a stack ranking, a, a cardinality of all the people on Stack Exchange that turns out to be shockingly accurate as judged by professional engineers. Um, so when you can really get at the heart of it, let me actually read people's codes using AI. Let me read their questions and their answers. Uh, let me process massive amounts of independently generated data sources. Um, turns out it's vastly more um, informative than following social cues. Vivian, I did not imagine I was going to ask you this question today, but how does somebody who understands where all of the data is coming from, how it's influenced, actually search for things? My imagination says you're not going on Google and figuring out whether you should buy Yahoo shares or whether you should join X company's advisory board or board um, or invest time or your dollars. How does that actually work? Sorry, how does it work for who? For, for me? you. Yeah. I mean, you must search for things very differently than than Chris and I? I 
So I do, I, I combine two things together. Um, I'm a, a filter feeder. I just, a lot of things sort of drift in my direction. And so I get, I hear about a lot of interesting opportunities. Um, and, you know, what it boils down to for any given opportunity, being an advisor, joining a board, um, just sort of generically working on a project as a, as a personal project. Uh, is one, do I actually like the people involved? Um, and I only know that if I spend time with them. Uh, I'm a social misfit. And so really, until I get a sense around people, I don't have a good read on how I will actually experience them. Uh, two, do I think they can actually do it? Um, and that comes from doing a lot of basic research into a given domain. So some contexts I may not have a lot of experience in it um, and so dive in wholeheartedly uh, and then the last is the ask so and the, the ask is not about equity you know most of the companies that I advise I get some small standard like quarter percent um, set of shares um, Really, it is a good example of this is the company Emoja. Um, the night before I met with them, I was having dinner with an acquaintance, and she was talking about a new company she was thinking of founding. And just as a total throwaway, she says, but if you could figure out some way to predict manic and depressive episodes and bipolar sufferers, I would drop it all and do that. Clearly, that had some personal meaning to her. To me, it was just a curiosity. So I spent that night researching and looking it up. Despite being a neuroscientist, I, I don't know that much about bipolar disorder. Um, but I learned a lot. Turns out it's the costliest mental health disorder in the world. That 25% of sufferers go on to eventually kill themselves. It's, it's really pretty horrific. Um, and then the next day, I meet with a little startup that's doing continuous emotional state estimation passively off of mobile phones. You just carry your phone around with you. You don't do anything. Uh, and it estimates your mode state. I slowly, I, I agreed to be their advisor. Uh, and then eventually I joined their board and I slowly talked them out of doing ad targeting and into market research. I think there's a ton they can do there, high impact. It's not a field which has been uh, as disrupted as ads have already been. Um, but my ask was, let me use your data. Give me free access to all of the data. I'm going to build a system to predict manic episodes and bipolar sufferers. Um, it was just um, circumstance. Uh, someone had put a bug in my uh, ear the night beforehand, and, uh, and then I just stumbled into a perfect data set for tracking this. Uh, and those two things together were powerful. So as opposed to, you know, recently Uber reached out to me, probably just checking some boxes on an executive search and said, would you be interested in being a chief scientist for us? To which I said, hell no. Um, but, you know, that as, as lucrative and, um, as high profile as a job like that would be, I, I just don't see any opportunity for that sort of really synergistic uh, creative process. It's going to be about building autonomous cars and 
you know, maximizing the return on, uh, you know, like their existing discoveries. They charge you slightly more if your battery is low because they know you need to, you need the ride. Um, that doesn't get me terribly excited. And unfortunately, um, I, I only work hard on things that get me excited. Chris, I, I know one of the things you wanted to learn um, was related to how you might filter information correctly. And, and Vivian, sorry not to acknowledge that last point. I don't, I don't mean to be rude. That, that's pretty clear to me in having interacted with you. You only work on things that get you excited. And if, it doesn't, if it just gets you happy, you're like, thanks, but no thanks. Um, yeah. One of the things Chris was saying is, I bet I could learn how to filter some of my decision-making matrices just in terms of conversationally um, before we got on the call with you. Uh, Chris, I'm kind of curious about how the, the kind of questions you want to know about that will make you a better investor that you can literally leave after today looking at slightly differently. Well, um, there's a practical side to it. You know, um, all investors of worth run screens and we build these um, the models, uh, spreadsheets, etc. But the real information um, that I've found that makes or breaks the investment is always um, qualitative. Um, it's found in the footnotes. That's <laughs> where you learn what's really going on. But I've constantly thought there must be a better way to measure this um, quantitatively you know, or figure out the absolutely. So, yeah. So we, um, at Guild, we found that um, it is the sort of self-generated, unstructured parts that were generally the most exciting. It was the bio section on people's LinkedIn profiles, where they just freeform wrote about themselves. It was uh, the comments embedded in the people's codes. It was the actual question and answers, and not the statistics collected around it, that were the most interesting. But then that means you have to design AI systems that can actually understand those, or at least extract enough meaning out of it for it to be actionable. Um, sort of almost specifically along the lines, but totally different domain, a paper just got published uh, just last week, I think. Uh, and really, this will sound off topic, but um, my impression is this is not far. Uh, someone built a deep neural network and trained it uh, to map companies' uh, publicly published API um, specifications. So APIs, you know, are essentially how one computer system interacts with another computer system. Mm -hmm. um, and if I wanted to use to to talk about what we've already talked about. If I want to use LinkedIn's data um, uh, officially, then I need to understand how to how to leverage their API, have my code, query their code, return results. So someone trained a deep neural network to map these uh, API technical documents onto not just actual code, but human readable instructions on how to code. So if I said, hey, uh, so I could type in, um, how do I find out someone's age on AngelList? 
it will return the instructions on how I could query their API to get that data. Um, so this is, you know, this is a deep neural network. It has learned this on its own. It extracted this information. I could see the same thing in what you're talking about, which is if you could take a massive set of, of these publicly available documents, um, and, you know, there's two approaches. One is to say, and look for metrics, uh, just train it to predict metrics of interest. Uh, presumably, it would rediscover on its own, which you're already saying, which is some of the most predictive things are in those footnotes uh, that are sort of, they're, they're off the beaten path. Um, and the best example, the best algorithms in this space are, are called deep reinforcement learning algorithms. So um, like the, the system that won the recent Go championship, AlphaGo, uh, Google's, um, they bought a company. It was, it was a company that built a, an AI system that could learn how to play video games all by itself. It just watched other people play video games, then it started playing it itself, and pretty soon it could be humans. And then they teach it to do the same thing in chess. And then recently, Go. And what's really fascinating is its only real ultimate signal is, did I win the game or not? But somehow it figures out what that means in terms of the joystick movements in Pac-Man uh, or strategic deployment in an incredibly sophisticated game like Go. So algorithms like that, again, presumably could pull that kind of insight out of the publicly released documents. Or you could just cut to the chase and say, I know this stuff is important, but it's really unstructured. Is it possible to mine this automatically and then apply the, the machine learning directly to that? Uh, you know, both are really, in principle, very doable. Um, if you know one thing is highly predictive, you could just dive straight into that and you need less data to get a good signal out of it. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me at all because, again, we found the same thing. Um, I mentioned much earlier um, how to get people to stay 60 to 80% longer on the job. Uh, well, it turns out it's culture fit, and I define culture fit in a big data machine learning driven way. I toss everything. If, you know, GE has nowadays, say, roughly 300,000 employees, well, we had them in our system, at least the English language employees. And I built a cultural model of GE based on how those people sold themselves or described themselves online. Very unstructured. Um, it was none of the stuff you'd expect. It was... Um, you know, it, it, it was much more of the footnote kind of data that turned out to be really interesting, but not just about those people that generated the footnotes, but about the company that eventually ended up hiring them and, and what it really said. It was like, your LinkedIn page is an ad for you. Who bought it? Who bought your, your style of LinkedIn page? Turns out hugely informative, um, but in none of the ways that traditional HR looks at. So I'm very much in sync with you that it's these these sorts of insights that you can glean um, sort of off label are usually the best ones. Well, I actually just 
gave a talk for ABSA in uh, Johannesburg. Um, I didn't pick the title for the talk, but it was The Investment Singularity. And it was a conference they were holding for financial advisors in Africa. And and I gave the closing keynote about, you know, what happens when AIs start to displace financial advisors and uh, and managers. Um, And what does it even mean for a market system to be composed of a bunch of AIs. Uh, you know, it, it, it becomes a really curious notion of, of resource allocation through systems that are already nearing optimality. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating space. Um, do you mind giving us a little bit, you know, in closing, do you mind giving us a little bit more uh, data about that? You know, the future of Wealthfront and... You know, will will Chris Heidel in twenty five years still have a job as a killer investor? Or, <laughs> I mean, I mean, will he need to be retrained? I mean, we we should know now. Um. Well, I can tell you if if you do want to be retrained, don't go teaching yourself how to program. Um, I don't think any of these skill sets are. So the piece I'm writing actually for the Financial Times, like, or, or no, this is the one for Ted Med. It's it's um there really aren't any skills or knowledges which are robot-proof. You know, it's, it's largely just a game of economics at this point. Um, and anything, any piece of knowledge I might bring to bear, uh, any particularly refined skill, um, uh, labor or cognitive that I might be able to bring, and almost certainly design, if not now, within the next five to ten years, design an AI that can do it better. Um, so then the question is, what is there for us? Uh, what's left over? And, you know, Wealthfront and, and these other companies are already trying to automate a lot of this process. Uh, and I think their success is mainly about people's laziness, uh, than it is real success in terms of, of what those systems return. But they start to point the way. So I already brought up the point of AlphaGo. If you could mash up, just take two real-world technologies, mash up the massive data accumulation of Watson, IBM Watson, its ability to parse through all of those documents and make meaning of them, with AlphaGo's ability to take a very weak signal and turn it into an incredibly complex winning strategy all on its own. Put those two things together and think hard about how much value a a human can add into that process uh, and where that value is going to reside. I don't think it's, you know, quite frankly, I suspect that the, you know, Alpha Watson financial advisor is going to end up with financial strategies that we won't even understand, That, that, you know, people will make an academic career just trying as like forensic historians trying to figure out what it was doing a year ago, much less what it's doing today. Um, but we still need to decide what this actually means for us as human beings. We're the ones with goal-directed behavior. We're the ones that understand other people and their fears and their needs. Uh, so I think hard numbers, skills and knowledges, it does tell, I don't know if you find it a frightening story or not, because clearly productivity increases, but it does tell a frightening human story if um, 
we're not ready for a world in which our value is largely a measure of our creativity and robustness. Um, as long as we continue to bring that, I think there's still a big story for humanity. Uh, the problem is, you know, the vast majority of people in the world don't bring that. Chris, I think and you're safe. That, that's what I hear. Yeah. I think that there will be a, a place for um, uh, bad jokes and uh, <laughs> human feelings in I, the I, process. I'm for, safe too. <laughs> for many decades to come. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was um, man or Carl Sagan. I'm getting them confused. <laughs> They're very different. Um, he argued that leisure is the basis for culture. So presumably, you're right, Vivian, uh, that's in an agreement, a statement in agreement with you that the creative impulse, um, creating rather than consuming, um, is what's left for the <laughs> carbon-based actors in the world yes. to, <laughs> to fulfill. Um, to yeah, we, but you know, we, we just we just simply don't have a society of problem solvers. We don't. Our creative class remains very rarefied. Uh, and I'm a I'm the, my main concern. I'm genuinely bullish. I'm a technophile. I I work on AIs. I wouldn't do it if I thought they were evil. I'm not trying to slow down technology, but we need to speed up humanity. Um. We, we can't have 1% of the population ready for this transition because what's going to happen when Africa is best characterized as half a billion young men with nothing but time on their hands? Uh, I think the one social institution that's going to love that, or the two, would be Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram. Well, I was going to make some joke uh, about some it, Nigerian banks, but that, that'll work too. Uh, well, yeah, they all have that too. And, but, you know, it's not going to be that much better of a story in, you know, Denmark or San Francisco. It, it, it will be brutal all around if, if we don't think about ourselves and, and how we're going to continue to contribute. And teaching every student how to program um, is, is no kind of solution. That's just another thing to be automated away. Vivian, just just to kind of close the conversation here today, I thought we'd just ask you a few kind of uh, lightning round kind of questions. Um, any any things you suggest that uh, we read or the people who will inevitably listen to this podcast uh, should be reading in terms of publications or books or um, poetry? <laughs> However, it may be uh, poetry. I gotta. I, I'm probably gonna have to dig deep to give you any poetry. <laughs> I didn't figure we were gonna um, get one, but I'm looking for something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you can sit on your hands for a few months, or uh, at least till the end of the year, we're hopefully have how to rub up with your kids out um, near the end of the year, and then next up is the tax on being different. Um, we have a number of pieces, op-eds and so forth, that I've been writing since then. Uh, you know, if I'm going to do it, just a straight shout-out to something that I think is really useful and in line with what we've been talking about. Uh, I just recently finished Creativity, Inc. Um, by one of the co-founders of Pixar about how you maintain uh, a creative culture 
uh, in the face of hierarchy. And I thought uh, it deserved all the praise that it got. I think it's easy to read between the lines and pick up on the elitism of the place. But at the same time, it tells a really hard story. If, if you believe that making mistakes is not just uh, acceptable, but a fundamental part of the process, you cannot praise people that never make mistakes. Uh, and he has this great anecdote about Toy Story 3 and doing exactly that and completely failing his employees um, by, by, by making those, those sorts of errors. And it may seem a little far from financial, but believe me, I've, I've, I talk with a lot of banks and um, I think of it nowadays as the innovation trap. You know, your goal is to not get your lunch eaten by Google or Baidu or Tencent. Um, and you're doing it in a culture where your traditional approach to innovation is a memo from the CEO that says, uh, as of uh, June 11th, we will officially be an innovative company. I would appreciate it if all department heads could submit reports on their plans for innovation over the next 18-month period. And you know, clearly it's, it, it seems irrational because it is, but that is how a lot of the financial world approaches this. Um, and um, understanding people is just as valuable as understanding technology and seeing where this industry is going. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, your lightning round question. Well, I think Vivian, I just can't. Um, help but agree with you so strongly. I mean, the investment side of this business, I and mean, it's brutally unforgiving, especially with benchmarking and other um, so-called metrics that take into account very short-term measures of performance but don't come close to linking the near to the far and incorporating what people really need or their goals um, and, and the right perspective. So, um, it is unforgiving, and of course, more money has flown into passive investment strategies as a result, which, um, because so many investors, even including the great ones like Warren Buffett last year, being very much derided for underperforming the S&P 500, as he has episodically, but his stated goal, of course, is not to beat that benchmark, yet the criticism is very strong. and. It leads so many into these passive strategies, which um, are fine in some ways, but it's the epitome of not trying. And investors like yeah. um, like Buffett and like uh, Ray Dalio, and um, you know there are many other lesser-known um, uh, investors, but they're those who are trying to figure out something different. Novak with the gross profitability premium and others, they're trying to do something. They're trying to learn. And it is um, fraught with its pitfalls. And, <laughs> you know, but the, the industry is just so unforgiving. Um, fascinating. And it um, falls in line. We could pull in a completely different line of research for me about um, the effective incentives. Uh, I wrote a piece. Uh, for taconomy on the paradox of incentive insensitivity, that the best performers are almost universally insensitive to incentives. 
They do things for their own reasons. Um, and yet that seems like the definition of a bad strategy for markets. And yet I, I would I would strongly predict that the best performers in your industry show the same qualities as everyone else. They invest for their own reasons um, and, and follow their own muse in that process. Uh, and all those people that are so sensitive to in- incentives, uh, they're so sensitive to what other people are observing about the short-term performance of their funds. Uh, unsurprisingly, it turns out they're just like everyone else. Teachers, skateboarders, students, uh, uh, officers in the army, the more sensitive they are, the more they care about what other people think, the worse they perform over the long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Vivian, as um, you know, when when uh, Neil and I were first talking about you, he said that you were one of the greatest autodidacts that he'd ever met. <laughs> and I get that very strongly that um, you first um, really seek to self-educate. Is this um, something you've cultivated over time, naturally fallen into, or is it your armor against miseducation? You know, I, the one thing I had many, many years, my life was just a horrible mess. Um, I think people could look at me and they could have looked at the train wreck and then thought, oh my goodness, um, uh, she, she, she would rather have been in the train wreck. Um, and uh, <laughs> It's hard to believe I, looking at you today. <laughs> I've, I've, it's part of why when I give talks you know, to college students, I emphasize the idea of reincarnating and, and, and how profound it can be to start over again. Um, but the one thing I did have back then was a, a love of knowledge. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid that in elementary school, I didn't do book reports on Judy Bloom. Uh, I did book reports on nonfiction. You know, I'd read a book about whales and do a book report on, on, on whales and um, and when I was at my lowest low in my early adult life, I was still consuming uh, so much. I was reading so much every day. Um, and it's one thing that I always had. But the other is a, is a mashup. It's a combination. Um, you know, I started my professional career as a wet neuroscientist, a, bi- a biologist, really. And then I became a computational neuroscientist and then an entrepreneur and then an educational technologist, and then a labor economist, and now a writer, and everywhere along the, world, along the way, these were mashups. These were, wow, I, I wonder what neuroscience has to say about machine learning. I, I wonder what the, the brain plus machine learning has to say about labor economics. Uh, I wasn't necessarily always the most informed person in every new field I entered, but I was always bringing something of value along with me because I became an expert in everything I'd done up to that point. And then I brought that new mind uh, to a new domain uh, and could feel real confidence that, that one, it's okay to not know every detail of, um, say, something I've been dabbling in recently, which is um, politics. 
to not know every detail about how the political system works and where the money comes from and, and how communications flow out of a political campaign. But when I could bring the tools I have learned from other fields to bear on it, I was from day one, I was saying something new that people needed to hear. So it's been a strong motivator. Thanks, Vivian. Thank you. Vivian, thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. It's been, oh, it's been it great, was an absolute Vivian. pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, Neil, Viv- thank you for arranging this. Too. Yeah, of, it's been beautiful. Of course. And, and Vivian, when, when your book comes out, we want to buy uh, 20 copies of each to give away to people who are listening. So um, mm-hmm. please, please, please know that we're your first on your order list. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I, I will take that as a contractual obligation. And I'll you let my should. publisher know. I'm recording it, and you should. <laughs> and we're happy to write checks ahead of time. Uh, yes. Wonderful. We're, we're, we're seriously I just know happy you, to share Your it. Christmas plans are all set. Well, no, not Christmas plans. We actually want to just give it to give it away to people who want to get to learn more about some of the things you've thought about. Um, so uh, the listeners here would, I'm sure, be really excited. So literally the first... 20 people every time one of her books comes out and we'll announce it beforehand to, to email us having interest. We'll just get a copy of the book for free. Great. Perfect. Vivian, yeah, thank you very idea. much. Well, it was great to talk to you. Thanks Absolutely. for joining the, the, the Chris and Neil show or the Neil and Chris show, depending on uh, which episode you're listening to. <laughs> uh, Chris, I'll catch up with you later. And Vivian, I'll give you a shot as soon as we end here. All right. Thank Perfect. you, Dr. May. Talk to you guys Appreciate again soon. It. Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye.